It took a civil war and constitutional amendment to eradicate slavery and ensure that all Americans, regardless of their skin color or circumstances, would be part of we the people. But by the 1880s, the civil rights movement was losing steam, and a Supreme Court ruling signaled the end of federal efforts to protect freedmen and women and ushered in the era of Jim Crow laws. One justice, later called the Great Dissenter, stood alone. I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Anastasia Bowden. And this week on DIST, we're looking at the civil rights cases of 1883. The court's decision is indefensible. I respectfully dissent. Because the majority in this case has not done what a court of law must do, I respectfully dissent. For these reasons and others elaborated, in my opinion, I respectfully dissent. We respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I dissent. It's said that great Supreme Court dissents lie like buried ammunition, waiting for future generations to unearth when the time comes. John Marshall Harlan served on the Supreme Court from 1877 to 1911, and during those 34 years wrote quite a few dissents, 316 to be precise. Harlan often dissented by himself, showing a mind that was out of step with the mainstream legal thought of his day. Today, he's known as the Great Dissenter, and for good reason. He's been called a voice crying in the wilderness, and while not all of his dissents would eventually turn into majority opinions, his words were prescient and laid the groundwork for changes in the law sometimes nearly a century later. Harlan's best-known dissent came in 1896 in the infamous Plessy v. Ferguson. The majority approved the separate but equal doctrine that bolstered racial segregation. Harlan declared in dissent that our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes. The law regards man as man and takes no account of his color. Half a century later, Thurgood Marshall, then the head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and later Supreme Court Justice, would turn to Harlan's dissent in Plessy, calling it his Bible, drawing inspiration and strength from it when he litigated Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka and successfully toppled the separate but equal doctrine. But this episode is about another dissent written 13 years earlier, John Marshall Harlan's first dissent that provided an early glimmer of the greatness he would later be celebrated for. So who was John Marshall Harlan? We turn to Peter Canellos, a journalist and author of the new Harlan biography, The Great Dissenter, to learn about the justice. A a truly distinctive voice, you know, somebody who was answering to a very different sense of justice and a different mode of interpretation of the Constitution. So, you know, there's an intriguing aspect to a figure who was so out of step with his times and yet then landed very comfortably into uh, the heart of modern-day jurisprudence. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. To start at the beginning... Kentucky is central to everything about Harlan and to Harlan's ability to see the law differently, not just in the race cases, but also in economic cases. He was born in 1833, the second generation of his family to be born in Kentucky, but they were already one of the state's most prominent families. He was the son of pretty much the leading attorney in Kentucky, uh, whose big uh, avocation was pulling together the largest private law library in Kentucky. And with a name like John Marshall Harlan, named for the great Chief Justice John Marshall, whom Harlan's father James idolized, John Harlan was clearly destined for the Supreme Court. And his upbringing in Kentucky had a huge impact on his worldview. 
including his views on race, the Constitution's protection of rights, and the relationship between the states and the national government. Don Marshall Harlan's upbringing was in many ways idyllic at Harlan Station. I mean, it's a beautiful spot. It's by the Salt River. It's you know, got rolling hills. It's on the edge of bluegrass country. But, um, but his entire upbringing was shadowed by the coming civil war or the issues that would lead to the coming civil war. So he grew up with the, the shadow of a civil war that he and his father and Henry Clay and others, you know, clearly believed would destroy Kentucky. They felt that geographically their state was right in the middle and would be the battleground for this war. They also knew that the state was very divided between Southern and Northern sympathies and that its civic fabric would be torn apart by the civil war. So his entire youth and young adulthood was, was dedicated to sort of wrestling with the question of, of national destiny and uh, national cohesiveness, uh, and slavery. Harlan grew up with someone the family treated as a relative, who may have been his half-brother, who was Black. And I also think the presence of Robert Harlan, who was enslaved in the house, but had a very close familial relationship, grew up in the main house, had a special relationship with James Harlan, was presumed at the time to be James Harlan's son, uh, and was 16 years older than John Marshall Harlan. Uh, but was this sort of um, swashbuckling figure? I think it's 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 hard to assess this relationship without believing that uh, that James Harlan felt a family connection to Robert, um, and he certainly saw the potential in Robert. Gave Robert Robert full run of freedom. Uh, Robert himself said that James had tried to educate uh, Robert to get Robert into school, but uh, had been had been angered when the school wouldn't take him because of his African American heritage. It's full of mysteries. It's a relationship that's full of question marks. But what we know suggests that there was a, a, a warm relationship. And what we also know from the future is that Robert Harlan stayed in touch with uh, John Harlan and his siblings and repeatedly spoke well of their father, James Harlan. So clearly Robert Harlan felt a family tied to the Harlans. A DNA test conducted in 2001 on a distant cousin of John's and one of Robert's direct descendants showed they might not be related after all. But either way, Robert had a profound impact on John. What were some of the other important influences on him? Here's more from Peter. So religion was absolutely uh, central to his life. His personality, I think, was shaped, though, as much uh, by his faith in the American experiment and his belief in American democracy. You know, he, he was the ultimate believer in, in American exceptionalism, what we would call exceptionalism today. He believed that uh, the United States was sort of the greatest experiment on earth. He took deeply to heart the uh, words of the founding fathers, delivered speeches and orations where he would quote directly from the founding fathers and, uh, and saw himself as like, as like the perfect kind of um, apostle of the American system. It's, it's hard to imagine a Supreme Court justice who was more steep in the original uh, values of the Republic uh, as, as John Marshall Harlan. After graduating from Center College, he attended law school at Transylvania University and quickly made a name for himself, serving in a number of posts in state government, including as attorney general. His views on the institution of slavery evolved during this time. While he had once advocated compromises to preserve the union, such as compensating slave owners to promote gradual abolition, Peter explained, in the uh, late 1860s, uh, he did undergo a tremendous uh, conversion. I think the kinds of things that went into this conversion were um, his sense that slavery and inequality had been sort of an original sin in America that 
that, that jeopardized this experiment in self-government that he so strongly believed. He woke up to the idea that uh, slavery was uh, a terrible offense to those values, those same values of uh, equality of man that he had been quoting in speeches from when he was he was younger. So he came to believe that any form of inequality was uh, inequality under the law was a uh, a real sin against the American system and a, and a, and. and was being pursued in defiance of the ideas of the founding fathers. His wife, Malvina, also had a hand in this conversion. One way that Malvina Harlan, I think, influenced him is that she came from a family that supported abolition. I mean, that was from Indiana, from a free state. Uh, I think that he spent a lot of time in Indiana um, uh, very early in his life, in his early 20s, and um, actually admired the economic gains that Indiana had made without slavery. So I think it cemented in his mind that slavery was a uh, outmoded and also morally offensive institution. She played a big role in, in doing that. In a speech in 1871, Harlan exclaimed, I have lived long enough to feel and declare that the most perfect despotism that ever existed on this earth was the institution of African slavery. It knew no compromise. It tolerated no middle course. I rejoice that it is gone. And he acknowledged the departure from his earlier views, declaring, let it be said that I am right rather than consistent. In the early 1870s, Harlan set up a law practice in Louisville with Benjamin Bristow, who would later serve as the first Solicitor General of the United States and Treasury Secretary. Harlan made a bid for governor of Kentucky as the Republican candidate in 1871. Though he lost, the campaign helped him establish his footing in the Republican Party. And just a few years later, there was a new Republican president and a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Here's Peter. The circumstances of Harlan's appointment were that uh, it came out of the disputed presidential election of 1876, when there were all these behind-the-scenes, backroom lobby deals uh, between Republicans and Democrats to allow Hayes to assume the presidency, but with various concessions to Southern Democrats. And one of them was uh, putting a Southerner on the court. The court was all Northerners. Some Republicans were skeptical of Harlan because, as Peter explains, John Harlan had come from a slave-owning family. He had been slow to uh, accept the idea of abolition. He had been slow to even accept the idea of the post-Civil War amendments, which was partly an, you know, an unfair judgment because he had been the um, attorney general of Kentucky and felt an obligation to uh, enforce agreements that he thought had been made by the Lincoln administration to allow Kentucky to set its own path on slavery. Nonetheless, to Northerners, that translated as something far less than a commitment to the post-Civil War amendments. But can you guess who came to the rescue? Robert Harlan, as a political power in Ohio, played a, a sort of hidden role in helping John Harlan get on the Supreme Court. Robert Harlan was officially emancipated in the 1840s and then went out west during the California Gold Rush to seek fame and fortune. He did well for himself and eventually settled in Cincinnati, Ohio, where he became a power broker. But back to Peter. People needed persuading. So here you have Robert Harlan, who grew up in the same home and is the leading African-American politician in Ohio, also vouching for John Marshall Harlan and writing letters, letters that have survived to John Harlan, you know, offering his political advice and talking about trips he'd made to Washington and hearing rumors and talking to people about potential Supreme Court nomination. So 
I think, you know, it's very hard to assess what Robert Harlan's influence was. But if you think that the, the huge and, and real hurdle to his confirmation and, and initially to his appointment was a sense of skepticism about his commitment to civil rights, um, having the leading black politician be someone who grew up in your home, someone who was black and, and is vouching for you uh, made a big difference, I think. Harlan was confirmed by a unanimous vote in the Senate in late 1877. When he arrived at the Supreme Court, Harlan is this unusual figure. You know, he's the he's the poorest justice. He's the only justice like from the South. He is the only justice who had real life experiences with African Americans. Most of the Northern justices were card carrying abolitionists, but they had very little personal experience of African Americans. I think to some extent that enabled them to fall prey to some of the notions of how uh, formerly enslaved people weren't ready to take on responsibilities of citizenship, or even there was, you know, racial inferiority notions and things like that. I think there was a receptiveness to those kinds of viewpoints. I also think that their tremendous business background led them to believe that as a practical matter, you know, the North and South had to stitch up their wounds uh, to keep the economy going, to keep the country thriving, to keep everyone being successful. But Harlan was from a very different place, a very different set of values, a very different set of sensibilities and thought completely different. So how did he fit in at the court? Morrison Waite was the chief uh, justice and who put a high premium on unity within the court, uh, discouraged dissent strongly. Many of Harlan's letters from that time suggest that he was eager to be deferential to some of his older colleagues and to sort of win their respect. But by 1883, he was about to turn 50. He also had gone through some watersheds in his personal life. But it was at that moment that he decided to break with his colleagues in very fundamental ways. If the Supreme Court was going to uh, abandon African-American rights in this, this absolutely seminal case, it was not going to be unanimous. That brings us to the civil rights cases. The Civil War ended in the spring of 1865, but before the war ended, Congress had already passed the 13th Amendment in January of that year, and it was ratified by three-quarters of the states by the end of that year. Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1866 over President Andrew Johnson's veto, which sought to protect freedmen from having their rights curtailed by the states. And a few months later, Congress passed the 14th Amendment, and it was ratified by the states two years later on July 9, 1868. And what do the 13th and 14th Amendments say, you ask? The 13th Amendment, Section 1, states, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall be duly convicted, shall exist within the United States, or any place subject to their jurisdiction. And the 14th Amendment, Section 1, says, All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof, are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. There are other sections dealing with congressional apportionment and civil war debts, and both the 13th and 14th Amendments authorize Congress to enforce those amendments by appropriate legislation. 
The 14th Amendment is one of the longest and most important amendments to the Constitution, and it empowered the federal government to take a much stronger role in protecting our civil liberties. As Peter explained, There was a Civil Rights Act that was in place from 1866. People had been challenging its constitutionality. And one of the reasons that the 14th Amendment was passed was to strengthen the constitutionality of the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which proceeded largely upon the same legal grounds as the Civil Rights Act of 1875. Flexing its new powers following the passage of the 14th Amendment, radical Republicans in Congress advanced a new civil rights law to, quote, protect all citizens in civil and legal rights and guarantee equal access to public accommodations. It was debated for five years and ultimately the most controversial aspect, prohibiting segregation in public schools, was dropped from the final bill. Backed by criminal penalties, the Civil Rights Act of 1875 required equal access to public conveyances, accommodations, and places of public amusement, as well as service on juries. At the same time, the mood in the country was was rapidly shifting and had really already shifted by 1883 against the taking extraordinary efforts or what was seen as extraordinary efforts to protect the rights of African Americans. Uh, This was a uh, situation that had been developing probably for 10 years. It reached sort of the point of no return in 1877, the year that Parliament went on the court. By 1883, it was very much the view of white America in the North and the South that it wasn't worth uh, starting another civil war just to protect the rights of freed men and women. The Civil Rights Act of 1875, which was the subject of the civil rights cases, had been passed in uh, literally a lame duck session of, of Congress and signed into law because of a prior commitment by President Grant. But at the time, Grant was so aware of uh, how enraged the South was, particularly about this, that he didn't even have a signing ceremony. He sort of agreed to the Civil Rights Bill because he had committed to it and because a lame duck Congress uh, had passed it. Uh, Nonetheless, it was a huge commitment by the federal government to enforce the rights of African Americans to transportation and public accommodations, which Black people saw as just the rudiments of uh, civil and uh, economic life. What enraged people in the South were that individual businesses were obliged to serve serve Black people, and there were uh, small shop owners, there were uh, conductors at uh, uh, train lines, on train lines, um, and various other individuals, theater ushers, that uh, decided they didn't want to serve African Americans and that rejected people. And these cases began piling up of uh, African Americans who would show up at a restaurant, one case was in Kansas, and were kicked off the table so that white people could be accommodated. Here's Christopher Green, a professor at the University of Mississippi Law School and author of the book, Equal Citizenship, Civil Rights, and the Constitution. A jury provision from the act is upheld in 1880 in a series of cases. The uh, kind of the big one is Strauder versus West Virginia, but then there's Ex parte Virginia. Okay, so the court has already upheld by 1883 the jury provision of the Civil Rights Act of 1875. But we have this public accommodations provision. So this says if you are a railroad or an innkeeper or somebody who runs a place of public amusement, so an opera hall or a, uh, like an opera would be a highbrow, you know, running a pool hall, you can't 
refused to admit African-Americans, and it actually forbids segregating African-Americans. Uh, so uh, the railroads and uh, the inns and the pool halls and the opera houses and whatnot are to be desegregated uh, under federal law. You have this common carrier provision which tells uh, private entities like a railroad, hey, you have to uh, serve African-Americans in a desegregated way. Cases quickly piled up in the federal courts, and five cases wound their way to the Supreme Court. U.S. versus Stanley and U.S. versus Nichols, where plaintiffs refused service to black patrons at inns in Kansas and Missouri. U.S. versus Singleton and U.S. versus Ryan, where plaintiffs denied black patrons admission to the Grand Opera House in New York and the Dress Circle at McGuire's Theater in San Francisco. And Robinson versus Memphis and Charleston Railroad Company, where the plaintiff turned a black woman away from the ladies' car on a Memphis, Tennessee train bound for Virginia. The Supreme Court agreed to hear all five cases together, and it announced its opinion on October 16, 1883. The ruling was highly anticipated. Here's Peter. Unlike some of the other important civil rights cases or cases involving black rights, including Plessy v. Ferguson, which basically passed unnoticed in the larger national discussion, this was a subject of tremendous national interest. It was a front page story everywhere. Intense interest. Writing for an eight-member majority, Justice Bradley held that the Civil Rights Act exceeded Congress's power under both the 13th and 14th Amendments. The 13th Amendment was out because the act didn't seek to abolish badges or incidents of slavery, and the 14th Amendment was out because the act attempted to prospectively regulate private individuals rather than state actors. Starting with the 13th Amendment, the majority explains that the denial of equal accommodations is not a badge or incident of slavery. But what is a badge or incident of slavery? As Chris explained, The majority essentially says, what is a badge or incident of slavery? The rights in the Civil Rights Act of 1866. So the right to make and enforce contracts, the right to own land, the right to have uh, the same remedies that people of other races have. Under the 13th Amendment, the majority said Congress is authorized to enact legislation that is, quote, direct and primary, operating upon the acts of individuals, whether sanctioned by state legislation or not. By contrast, the majority explained legislation enacted pursuant to the 14th Amendment, quote, must necessarily be and can only be corrective in its character, addressed to counteract and afford relief against state regulations or proceedings. Individual invasion of individual rights is not the subject matter of the amendment. As one scholar put it, The question was, did Congress have the power to proscribe certain activities ahead of time? That's Melvin Yurofsky, professor emeritus at Virginia Commonwealth University and author of Dissents in the Supreme Court, which you might call our Bible for this podcast. Back to Melvin. Could Congress say to a state, you shall not do this? Or could Congress only act after the fact? When something had been done, then they could go into a state and said that was bad and try to correct it. Now, the first part, i.e. the proactive part, was the only way that you could have protected African-Americans, the former slaves after the war. Now, the thing is that by 1883, not only the court, but the country was tired of the Civil War. We had abandoned 
Reconstruction in 1876, and essentially told the South, the blacks are your problem, you take care of them. There was nothing quite so blatant as that, but that was essentially what was happening. The great barbecue was on. The robber barons were building their empires. There was money to be made. Immigrants were pouring into this country for the new factories and mills that were going up. And the last thing anybody really cared about was what happened to the former slaves. And that could be seen in the opinion in the civil rights cases in which the court essentially told Congress, you don't have the power to prescribe anything ahead of time. It cut the guts right out of all the civil rights cases. The majority also said the 14th Amendment did not, quote, authorize Congress to create a code of municipal law for the regulation of private rights, but to provide modes of redress against the operation of state laws and the action of state officers when these are subversive of the fundamental rights specified in the amendment. According to the majority, the Civil Rights Act of 1875, by contrast, does not profess to be corrective of any constitutional wrong committed by the states. It applies equally to cases arising in states which have the justice laws respecting the personal rights of citizens, as to those which arise in states that may have violated the prohibition of the amendment. The majority continued, quote, The wrongful act of an individual, unsupported by any state authority, is simply a private wrong. And if not sanctioned in some way by the state, or not done under state authority, a person's rights remain in full force. Here's Peter. The opinion that Justice Bradley wrote in the civil rights cases of 1883 was not legally preposterous. You know, it was a a position that stated that the post-Civil War amendments only apply to states. They apply to state action. If a state does not explicitly uh, violate the Constitution in terms of denying rights to African Americans, individuals who then violate the rights of African Americans are outside the purview of Congress. It's a state matter. So if your local business, if you're a conductor on the railroad, if you're a theater usher, uh, discriminate against African Americans, well, you know, states have to handle that. And as Chris explained, the court says that because the remedy in the Civil Rights Act is not contingent on whether a state has misbehaved, it's unconstitutional. To enforce Section 1, you have to be corrective. It has to be corrective of misbehavior by the state. And the majority concluded the opinion with this. When a man has emerged from slavery and by the aid of beneficent legislation has shaken off the inseparable concomitants of that state, there must be some stage in the progress of his elevation when he takes the rank of a mere citizen and ceases to be the special favorite of the laws. And when his rights as a citizen or a man are to be protected in the ordinary modes by which other men's rights are protected. I asked Peter about this and he said, uh, you know, this at a time when the Ku Klux Klan was was uh, lynching people and all that. It was clearly disingenuous in every way. And Harlan uh, very strongly called them out on, on that. As I said, you know, we, we don't know all of their motivations, but I think the, the majority or opinion, the majority of the court, you know, they fell prey to notions of uh, black inferiority. They, they fell prey to notions of the idea that it was essential for the economy that the North and South divisions be healed. They put all their faith in the state action argument, which again seemed plausible to them under the law. But once um, once they had turned their backs on the African-American community, suddenly, you know, all bets were off. 
Carlin dissented, and whether or not it was his first dissent, Melvin said, It's the first one we remember. While penning his dissent, Harlan drew inspiration from a surprising source. Here's Peter. He was sitting up in his study, really struggling with this dissent that was going to define his career. And he, and he would believe until his death, which was 30 years later, that, uh, that it, it was his defining opinion. Um, but he, you know, he couldn't get pen on paper. Um, his wife had secretly saved uh, the inkwell that Justice Tawney had used to write the Dred Scott opinion, which Harlan viewed as a legal abomination at that time, and which Harlan would recognize because he had originally collected it before, pretend, before promising it to a member of the Tawney family, but the wife, his wife, Malvina, had secretly kept it. So here he is struggling up at his desk trying to make this opinion work, and he very quietly puts the inkwell that Tawney used to write the Dred Scott majority opinion next to his, his place at the table. And she said that immediately after that, the ink started flowing. It was a miracle. <laughs> Naturally, we don't have audio of Justice Harlan reading his dissent since it's from 1883, but we know just the guy for the job. Uh, well, my name is Ben Beaton, and I'm a district judge in the Western District of Kentucky, um, sitting here in, uh, in my chambers in Louisville, which is about two or three blocks from where John Marshall Harlan and Benjamin Bristow uh, practiced law together in Louisville uh, in the 1870s. And uh, I first encountered John Marshall Harlan as a student at Center College in Danville, Kentucky, which is also Harlan's alma mater and also his hometown, uh, or at least very close to Harlan Station where he grew up. He was a, a hero and an example of what a, um, a small town Kentucky lawyer could grow up and into from a very young age. Starting with the 13th Amendment, he argued. The 13th Amendment did something more than to prohibit slavery as an institution, resting upon distinctions of race and upheld by positive law. My brethren admit that it established and decreed universal civil freedom throughout the United States. But was it the purpose of the nation simply to destroy the institution and then remit the race theretofore held in bondage to the several states for such protection as those states choose to provide? Were the states against whose protest the institution was destroyed to be left free to make or allow discriminations against that race in the enjoyment of those fundamental rights that inhere in a state of freedom? I do not contend that the 13th Amendment invests Congress with authority to regulate the entire body of the civil rights which citizens enjoy or may enjoy in the several states. Congress, under its express power to enforce that amendment, may enact laws to protect that people against the deprivation, on account of their race, of any civil rights enjoyed by other freemen in the same state. Personal liberty consists, says Blackstone, in the power of locomotion, of changing situation, or removing one's person to whatever place one's own inclination may direct, without restraint, unless by due course of law. But of what value is this right of locomotion if it may be clogged by such burdens as Congress intended by the Act of 1875 to remove. 
They are burdens which lay at the very foundation of the institution of slavery as it once existed. And turning to the 14th Amendment, he explained, The first clause introduced all whose ancestors had been imported and sold as slaves into the political community known as the people of the United States. They became instantly citizens of the United States and of their respective states. But what was secured to colored citizens of the United States, as between them and their respective states, by the grant to them of state citizenship? With what rights, privileges, or immunities did this grant from the nation invest them? There is one, if there be no others, exemption from race discrimination in respect of any civil right belonging to citizens of the white race in the same state. That, surely, is their constitutional privilege, their constitutional right, unless the recent amendments be splendid baubles. He disagreed with the majority about the scope of Congress's power under the 14th Amendment, writing, The citizenship thus acquired by that race, in virtue of an affirmative grant by the nation, may be protected, not alone by the judicial branch of the government, but by congressional legislation of a primary direct character. In his view, there was state action because... In every material sense applicable to the practical enforcement of the 14th Amendment, railroad corporations, keepers of ends, and managers of places of public amusements are agents of the state because they are charged with duties to the public and are amenable, in respect of their public duties and functions, to governmental regulation. It seems to me that a denial by these instrumentalities of the state to the citizen because of his race, of that equality of civil rights secured to him by law, is a denial by the state within the meaning of the 14th Amendment. I agree that if one citizen chooses not to hold social intercourse with another, he is not and cannot be made amenable to the law for his conduct in that regard. The rights which Congress, by the Act of 1875, endeavored to secure and protect are legal, not social, rights. Later in his opinion, Harlan identified an alternative source of congressional power, which was relevant to the case involving traveling by train from one state to another. The court, in its opinion, reserves the question whether Congress, in the exercise of its power to regulate commerce amongst the several states, might or might not pass a law regulating rights and public conveyances passing from one state to another. I beg to suggest that the precise question was substantially presented here in the only one of these cases relating to railroads. I suggest that it may become a pertinent inquiry whether Congress may, in the exertion of its power to regulate commerce among the states, enforce among passengers on public conveyances equality of right without regard to race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Finally, addressing the majority's closing, he noted, It is, I submit, scarcely just to say that the colored race has been the special favorite of the laws. The statute of 1875, now adjudged to be unconstitutional, is for the benefit of citizens of every race and color. What the nation, through Congress, has sought to accomplish in reference to that race is what had already been done in every state of the Union for the white race, to secure and protect rights belonging to them as freemen and citizens, nothing more. For the reason stated, I feel constrained to withhold my assent to the opinion of the court. Let's unpack Harlan's dissent. Chris provided some background on the issue of state action in common carriers. Chief Justice Matthew Hale, back in the late 17th century, has a a treatise which the court quotes at length in Munn in 1877. He's referring to Munn v. Illinois, but he'll get there in a minute. 
So Hale is distinguishing between the use privatum, which is just private parties. You know, if you've got a bridge somewhere that isn't at a particularly important juncture, you can charge people what you want. The use privatum has to do with what private parties interact with each other who are not at any kind of critical junction. The use privatum is distinguished from the use publicum, which is people who are not the state, but they are businesses affected with a public interest. And when a business is affected with a public interest, this is what Hale says a long time ago, and this is what Munn says in 1877, then the state can come in and regulate that business in the common good, in the good of all of the citizens of the state. And in the civil rights cases... The court is working against the background of the 1877 case of Munn versus Illinois. And the majority doesn't say really much about common carrier rights in in Munn. But what Munn said, Munn said in 1877, states are allowed to regulate common carriers like railroads or grain elevators, but the railroads are the big one. The court in 1877 said you can regulate the rates of railroads because the, the, the business of railroads is affected with a public interest. Because they stand at a critical juncture, the people defending the Civil Rights Act say, hey, look, the reason you're allowed to regulate railroads is because you're doing it in the common good of all the citizens. So all the states put lots of regulations on the railroads, but how can you impose those regulations only on behalf of white citizens and not on behalf of African-American citizens? So Harlan, in his dissent, says, look, you know, Munn has never been overruled. We should uh, just follow traditional common carrier rules to say if you regulate a common carrier, you're allowed to do it, but you've got to do it in the common good, in the interest of all citizens. But as Chris notes, there's a historical wrinkle that's important. Uh, So Harlan is, you know, heavily relying on this whole notion of affected with a public interest which comes into American constitutional law in 1877, people, it basically disappears um, after the revolution of 1937. So after the New Deal comes in and the court basically gets out of the business of of enforcing any kind of uh, serious economic liberty, they've come back in a little bit lately, but um, really they just, they don't care uh, after the 30s whether a business is affected with a public interest or not. So because we've lost that aspect of looking at the world, people look back at Harlan's stuff and they, they assume he's saying, oh, just private discrimination is unconstitutional. But he's not saying that. He's saying discrimination by somebody in the use publicum, uh, uh, somebody at a critical juncture in the market. That's who uh, uh, can be regulated and must be regulated in the public good. And that may seem like an easier sell with the railroad case. But what about the inns and places of public amusement? How are they common carriers? One thing you want to remember, certainly in terms of inns, you want to think in terms, you got to remember just how slow technology is. You get to a town, there's only one inn. If if they refuse you entry or they say, oh, you can come in, but it's going to be way more expensive for you people. If they're allowed to do that, they've really got you over a barrel. In 1872, in Congress, there's a huge debate about this as well. Uh, So, uh, you know, Our cemeteries, a common carrier, or analogous to a common carrier, or our schools, analogous to a common carrier. Chris provided some context about Harlan's discussion of implied powers. Prig, in 1842, 
is interpreting Article 4, Section 2, Clause 3 of the initial Constitution. Uh, It's the Fugitive Slave Clause. He's referring to the Supreme Court's decision in Prigg v. Pennsylvania. So you have this provision that says state law is not supposed to have a certain effect, and these people are to be delivered up. And the court in Prigg v. Pennsylvania, 1842, says Congress is allowed to enforce this provision without any contingency about whether the state has misbehaved. But it would be really weird to have, uh, have these, uh, these rights to recover your fugitive slave, to re-enslave your fugitives, uh, and then Congress not have any power to, to deal with it. So the court not only says Congress has power to, to do this, they also say, and they can do it without any contingency about whether the state has misbehaved. And what did this have to do with the Civil Rights Act and the 14th Amendment, according to Harlan? Harlan makes a very, very impressive rhetorical point saying, look, you know, we did not say that the power to enforce Article 4 is contingent on state misbehavior. Here we've got an actual Section 5 that says Congress has the power to enforce this prohibition on the states. Uh, Why on earth would we have this contingency Uh, where the state has to have misbehaved. And while the majority seem to think the Civil Rights Act of 1875 implicates social rights rather than civil rights, Harlan saw it differently. Harlan, in his opinion, makes very clear this is not about society. This doesn't give you social standing. It does mean when you're walking down the street, you can't force people of another race to to cross the street rather than keep going where they are. Okay, so people who want segregated public accommodations and public streets, uh, they, as they're walking down the street, they feel very insulted when somebody of the wrong race comes, comes, comes in front of them. And they say, oh, my God, they, you know, they get the vapors and they, they say, I can't believe I'm living in a public space that doesn't enforce my notions of social inequality. And Justice Bradley, who authored the majority opinion, wrote in his diary that, quote, Surely Congress cannot guarantee to the colored people admission to every place of gathering and amusement. To deprive white people of the right of choosing their own company would be to introduce another kind of slavery. So what was the reaction to the court's ruling in the civil rights cases? Here's Peter. The reactions to the, uh, to the majority opinion were uh, a large sense of relief in the white community. There's a story of how there was a, a theater production at the largest theater in Atlanta, and they literally <laughs> interrupted the play, stopped the play to announce that the Supreme Court had tossed out the Civil Rights Act of 1875. And Atlanta newspapers reported that you know, the whole orchestra section stood up and cheered. That's where the whites were. And there was total dismay in the balcony. That's where African-Americans were. While there was rejoicing in some parts of the country, in the black community, as one leading newspaper put it, quote, it was a cold bucket of water poured on the heads of black citizens. Here's more from Peter. It was uh, immediately perceived as a, as a terrible setback. Uh, Frederick Douglass, among others, you know, deeply grieved over this decision. Uh, He delivered sort of uh, speeches that were sort of combined uh, condemnations of the court, but also uh, trying to sort of 
bind up the wounds of the black community. Frederick Douglass wrote Harlan a letter saying that, first of all, it was the noblest and finest opinion ever written on the Supreme Court and that it should be put in the hands of every American. Um, he uh, called Harlan a moral hero. Uh, he spoke of Harlan's tremendous courage. Douglas also wrote in that letter, I wish to assure you, if you are alone on the bench, you are not alone in the country. Roscoe Conkling, the former senator from New York who helped draft the Reconstruction Era amendments, also wrote to Harlan and said, the dissent was, quote, the noblest opinion in the history of our country. Here's a little historical tidbit. Roscoe Conkling was the rumored lover of Kate Chase, daughter of Supreme Court Chief Justice Salmon P. Chase. Both Chases play a central role in our season one episode, A Descent Forgotten by History. But back to the story. The evening of October 22nd, a week after the civil rights case's opinion was announced, there was a gathering at Lincoln Hall in Washington, D.C., and Frederick Douglass and others delivered speeches about the case. Robert Ingersoll, a politician and orator known as the Great Agnostic, declared that Harlan had the breath of brain, the goodness of heart, and the loyalty to logic to dissent. Ingersoll continued, By the fortress of liberty, one sentinel remains at his post. For moral courage, I have supreme respect, and I admire that intellectual strength that breaks the cords and chains of prejudice and damned custom as though they were but threads woven in a spider's loom. This judge has associated his name with freedom, and he will be remembered as long as men are free. The ruling was a turning point, not only for Justice Harlan, but for our country. It would be 82 years until Congress successfully passed civil rights legislation. Here's Peter. I think it was an enormous turning point. I mean, it was when official America, America officially said, we're not listening to these arguments anymore. We're not doing anything about it. The ruling sent the signal that there were two types of citizens in our country, and states relied on this to pass laws separating black and white, ushering in the Jim Crow era of segregation. As for John Marshall Harlan, Peter said, Harlan became a diehard defender of African-American rights, case after case, and his dissents became angrier, but also more eloquent. Uh, his dissent in Plessy v. Ferguson, I think, is a a great statement on the purpose of the law and the importance of equality under the law and the, the majesty of the idea that every man comes before the court in an equal setting. And it includes these sort of iconic phrases like the Constitution is colorblind, the humblest is the peer of the most powerful, there is no caste here. You know, this is the product of all that he had seen after 1883. In many ways, his dissent in 1883 was a more ambitious work of law, but his dissent in Plessy v. Ferguson 16 years later uh, was the sort of wise and eloquent kind of distillation of, of values and ideas that had been uh, gestating within him for, for a decade and a half. But over time, Harlan faded from memory. As Melvin explained, in 1945, a survey was done of textbooks used in law school constitutional law classes, which is where you would study the great cases. And in not a single one of them was Harlan's dissent in the civil rights cases, in Plessy versus Ferguson, in the college case. None of these were in those textbooks in 1945. He was forgotten. People did not study Harlan. And then, of course, comes Brown. 
He's referring, of course, to Brown v. Board of Education. Uh, Brown didn't come by itself. There were a few cases before. And with Brown, Harlan is rediscovered. Now, um, there was a whole group of historians who worked with the Legal Defense Fund on this. They all refound, if you will, although I think most of them knew about it, but they now had these very eloquent dissents in both the civil rights cases and in the um, in Plessy, although neither one of them um, actually spoke to school segregation. Uh, but the research that was done by the Legal Defense Fund brings Harlan roaring back to life. And uh, he is, quote, rediscovered and uh, celebrated in a way that he never had been during his lifetime. And it wasn't just his dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson that saw a revival. Congress's use of the Commerce Clause rather than the 14th Amendment to pass a civil rights law echoed Harlan's dissent in the civil rights cases. Here's Peter. It's rather extraordinary that he makes reference to the Civil Rights Act being um, legally permissible under the Commerce Clause. You know, at the time, the Commerce Clause was not used to uh, enforce social legislation. Uh, But he introduces this idea at the end of his dissent. And so he said, if the federal government can you know, help private businesses through their power to back bonds, they can enforce certain standards on private businesses under the Commerce Clause as part of their power to regulate interstate commerce. It would take nearly a century, but Congress eventually followed Harlan's advice. Here's Melvin. When Congress went to write the 1964 Civil Rights Act, They did not use the enforcement clause of the 14th Amendment because the 1883 civil rights cases eight decades earlier had never been overturned. As far as congressional leaders were concerned, that was still the law. They didn't know if it was or wasn't. So in the preamble to the 64 Civil Rights Act, Congress bases its power upon the interstate commerce clause. That law was challenged in a couple of cases, which eventually reached the Supreme Court. In Katzenbach versus McClung and Heart of Atlanta Motel versus United States, both decided unanimously in 1964, the court upheld the Civil Rights Act of 1964's ban on discrimination against black customers at restaurants and hotels that serve interstate travelers. Anastasia, do you know the name of one particularly noteworthy justice who served on the court at that time? I do not, but you're about to tell me. John Marshall Harlan, the second, the grandson of the first John Marshall Harlan. And I believe they're the only pair of relatives who have served on the Supreme Court. So aside from having a grandson who also served on the Supreme Court, what is John Marshall Harlan's legacy? Peter had some thoughts. I think that his role as a lone dissenter, keeping the flame alive, if you if you view uh, things like the civil rights cases of 1883 and Plessy v. Ferguson as a terrible dark period in American law when the court, you know, absolutely got got it wrong and and violated a very fundamental aspects of the American system. Harlan's dissent um, maintained a certain faith in the law. I also think that you know, in in referring to Harlan's dissent in Plessy v. Ferguson as a uh, a Bible of Thurgood Marshall's. When Thurgood Marshall was trying to recruit plaintiffs to challenge Jim Crow, 
uh, he, these people knew that the Ku Klux Klan was watching, that this, becoming a plaintiff put their lives in jeopardy. And they had to be persuaded that there was some hope there. And so Harlan's dissent was to people like Thurgood Marshall and to those plaintiffs. It was a sign of hope. It was a sign that white people would be able to see the law through their eyes. <laughs> and and that's an enormous contribution just to the, the legal system alone. Harlan is one of the very few figures who is uh, revered on both the left and the right. So people frequently talk about the you know, tremendous divisions between the way that conservative justices and liberal justices view the law. He's one of the few unifying figures. Um, that's in some ways the, the ultimate tribute to, uh, to Harlan's legacy is that, uh, that, that people across the spectrum see reasons to admire him. Everything old is new again, as the saying goes. Public accommodation laws and protection of gay rights have been battled in the courts in recent years, most recently culminating in the Supreme Court's 2018 ruling in Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. In an opinion by Justice Anthony Kennedy, listeners should know Anastasia's swooning over her beloved AMK. The court held that, essentially, the owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop was not given a fair shake by the state Civil Rights Commission, which had investigated whether he violated the state's public accommodation law when he refused to make a wedding cake for a gay couple. But the court didn't address the heart of the matter in Masterpiece Cake Shop. And you have to wonder, what would an independent thinker, a voice crying in the wilderness like John Marshall Harlan, have to say about these cases? And will we ever see a Supreme Court justice like him again? Thanks for listening to DIST. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd appreciate your feedback, so send questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes to dist at pacificlegal.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends to check out DIST. Well, um... My dad is, uh, was the local newscaster um, in Paducah, Kentucky. So oh. I come by, um, <laughs> like, like Ron Burgundy, uh, the Beatons know how to read whatever words are put in front of them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, you're, you're muted, Grant. You're still muted. Oh, there he is. Hello. Okay. Anastasia, do you know the name of a particularly noteworthy justice who served at that time? Sock it to me. John Marshall Harlan, the second. Uh, yes, Louisville. Yes. It's Louisville. You've got, like you have a mouthful of rocks. Louisville. Louisville. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, do you see, but it was named after King Lua or King Louis Lua, is the King real Lua. question. There. We also yeah. have Versailles, Kentucky. So, you know, the normal <laughs> rules of pronunciation don't apply. <laughs> Section one says no state shall do blah, 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 blah. The pool halls, I, I, I thought, well, what are these people going to it anyway? You know, well, you know why, do you, why do you need to have desegregated uh, dens of iniquity like that? How many hours do we have? <laughs> Hopefully we won't need more than 30, 30 to 45 minutes. Um, okay. But I'm here all day. <laughs> I could talk about Justice Harlan all day. 